Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is very important to me. It's about a film that I am so in love with and I have a very deep affection for, and that's James Ivory's 1987 film, Morris. And I've loved this film for years, and I think it is beautiful and romantic, but I also think it's important because it's a film that affirms love and connection. So this episode is going to take you deep inside the film. I'm going to talk about E.M. Forster, who wrote the book Morris that the film is based on, I'm going to talk about, you know, the experience of him writing that book, why it wasn't published until after he died. And then I'm also going to talk about Merchant Ivory Productions, which created some beautiful period dramas um, in the 1980s and 1990s. And to end everything, I'm going to give you a really in-depth exploration of the film and try to explain and put into words all my intense, overwhelming emotions for this film. It's, it's like this dream that you enter when you watch it, and it's deeply romantic. It, it really affirms love, and that's what I'm really going to be talking most about. But um, it's just this dream that I don't want to wake from. As soon as I finish the film, I just want to start it all over again. It's that kind of film. And so this episode was really important to me. I've been wanting to talk about Morris for a long time. And it's just one of those films in my life that I feel a very deep connection to. And that I have a lot of emotions about. And I finally was able to get them out of my system with this episode. So I definitely hope that you'll stick around and you'll listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis. And you can also access rewards and extras. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's P-A-T. R-E-O-N dot com backslash her head in films. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give my shout outs. First, I'd love to welcome two brand new patrons. Hello to Tyler and Max. Thank you so much for supporting her head in films. I appreciate it so much. And I'd also like to give a shout out to my longtime patrons, David, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for supporting Her Head in Films. The podcast is listener supported, and I definitely intend to keep it that way. If financial support is not an option for you, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. If you write a review, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast, and I'll leave your name out. I just don't totally feel comfortable using people's names because you never know if that's their real name they're using for their iTunes reviews. So I'll leave that out, but I will read the review, and I just happen to have a new review, and I would like to read it. Um, A listener writes on iTunes, quote, I love this podcast. 
Caitlin is so genuine and her taste is amazing. It's great how she tackles film from a non-academic perspective, making film accessible to anyone. I spent a long time searching for a film podcast that didn't feel white male-centric or exclusive, so I'm thankful to Carolyn Pettit for pitching this podcast on Feminist Frequency. Very few of my friends enjoy talking about film with me, so in a way this podcast fills that space. It's opened up many doors for me. Thank you, Caitlin. Unquote. Well, thank you so much for leaving that review, and I love how you really understand what I'm trying to do with the podcast. I'm trying to make films that get talked about in really academic ways, you know, art film, art house cinema, world cinema. These films get to tend to be talked about in a classroom or through highly academic language, and I'm trying to make those films accessible and also deeply emotional because that's how they are for me. It's not that I don't watch mainstream or popular films. Of course I do. But for me, art house cinema, certain films in that genre are deeply, deeply personal and emotional for me. And they are, a, a, they are works of art. But I'm trying to make that accessible to everybody. And so I love that you get that. And thank you for mentioning Feminist Frequency. Carolyn Pettit has been a tireless and constant supporter of this podcast. And I really don't think her head in films would be where it is today without her, without her support on social media, without her, um, her kind words. And so yeah, big shout out to Carolyn there. And um, thank you for writing this review. These messages matter to me. You know, when you, when any of you message me on social media, when you engage with me or you send a positive uh, message to me or you write a positive comment on things that I share, it matters to me because I do this podcast alone. A lot of podcasts have multiple hosts or at least two hosts that are engaging with each other. I am on my own. I am alone. I'm doing everything. I record, I edit, you know, I, I do social media you know, sometimes I feel like I'm speaking into the void. I'm speaking into the ether. Does anybody hear me? Does my voice matter? You know, does what I have to say matter? And so your messages and your comments and your engagement is an affirmation to me. And it's also a confirmation to me that what I'm sharing and what I'm trying to do is being felt or understood or it's having some kind of um, positive effect in the world. And so I thank all of you for that. And I really thank um, the listener who wrote that message. If you would rather not write a review on iTunes, maybe you don't listen to the podcast on iTunes, please tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films if you think that it's something that would resonate with them. Um, or like I said, just send me encouraging messages or engage with me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Her Head and Films, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So I've gone on long enough. Let's start talking about Morris. Before I talk exclusively about the film and everything I feel about it, which is a lot, I wanted to give you a little bit of background information about E.M. Forster. 
about why he wrote Morris, the book. And I also want to talk about Merchant Ivory Productions and the filming of Morris. So there's just a few things, a few background items that I would like to cover because I think they're worth talking about. And I have some important things that I want to share. So first, I want to talk about E.M. Forster. Now, he is a writer that I'm not overly familiar with. When I was in college from 2010 to 2014 studying literature, I have a degree in English literature, I obviously read uh, some Forrester. I think the only book I read was A Passage to India. So I've read that and I've read Morris because seeing the film, I saw the film several years ago, seeing the film inspired me to read the book. And the film is very faithful to the book from what I can remember because it's been quite a few years since I read it. And I I love the book. Um, A lot of Forrester scholars sort of consider it a minor work by him. But I do think that over the years it's been rediscovered and sort of re-championed by people. And um, I don't think it's minor at all. I think it's a very important book. Um, I used to have this huge Barnes and Noble edition of some of Forster's novels, and I don't have it anymore. I lost my house in 2015, and when I lost my house, I also lost a lot of my books and my belongings that were in it. Um, I went through sort of a financially devastating time in my life, and that's why... I had to move and, and, and I lost the house and I could not take a lot of my belongings with me. And I had accumulated hundreds of books over the course of my life because this happened when I was around 25, 26 years old in 2015. And that was one of the books that I remember having because I don't know if any of you have been to Barnes & Noble recently or maybe they did this many years ago, but Sometimes you could buy these large editions. I mean, they were huge books, like hundreds and hundreds of pages, probably really over a thousand if they included multiple novels. And I had an edition of E.M. Forster, and I think it had, you know, A Room with a View and A Passage to India, and I think it had several of his novels in it. So Forster's someone I'm familiar with, obviously, Um And I also have another memory connected to Forrester that's really, really personal for me. This was the pre-internet days. This was the early 2000s. I've talked about in other episodes, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. We were working class and poor at times. I didn't have internet access when I was young. Um, I really didn't have access to the internet and I didn't have my own laptop and my own computer until 2010 when I was like 20 years old. So when I was in high school and younger, other kids maybe had computers at that time, even though computers were sort of still a new thing, I think in the 2000s. Um, I didn't have that at home. So I didn't have access to the internet for a long time. And so when I wanted to learn about things or access any kind of knowledge in my life, I didn't have the internet to go to. I I couldn't go Google E.M. Forster, right? But I had this huge book that I found somewhere. 
and I, it's not necess, it, it's not exactly an encyclopedia but it was like that it was about big major events from the past uh, 100 years or something like that and it covered World War One, World War Two. It covered writers and artists, and it would include these biographies of them, and they were pretty in depth. I mean, it was this huge book that I had, a huge hardcover book that I found, probably at the Goodwill. I used to buy books a lot at the Goodwill and at thrift stores, and I would buy them secondhand. Um, that's how I accumulated a lot of books, but obviously, I lost most of them. Um, which makes me really sad. But I I love thinking about this memory because I just had this huge book. And I wish I could remember what it was called. And I don't have it anymore, obviously. Um, I, di- I didn't bring it with me when I lost my house. But I kind of wish I had now. Because that book, this encyclopedia-like book, but it was in- more in-depth than that. The The little snippets were much longer. And it's actually how I found Sylvia Plath. There was this full page about her, and it included Daddy and Lady Lazarus in it, and it talked about her life, and I had never heard of Sylvia Plath. This had to be, you know, the early 2000s, you know, and I was maybe 12, 13, 14, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit older, I don't know, um, and I was like, who is this? And I was completely obsessed with her. But that's how I discovered Sylvia Plath was through this big encyclopedia-like book that I had. And there was a... And and what I would do is that I just craved knowledge as a kid. I, I just... You know, that's why I read books. That's why I, you know, sort of hoarded books, too. And I would watch PBS and I would listen to NPR and I watched the History Channel. And at that time, they actually showed documentaries about history and a lot of stuff about the Holocaust and World War II. And I was just always a kid who loved learning and I craved knowledge and I craved um, information about the world and about other cultures and about other people. I grew up in a small town in the South in North Carolina. And so my life was very sheltered. My life was very, um, I don't know what the word would be, like isolated. You know, I didn't know much about the world. I didn't come across a lot of different cultures where I lived. And um, so I was fascinated by that. And so I really craved knowledge as a kid. That's why I I bought this book. And um, sometimes I would just open it to random pages and read about different figures and that's how I found the part about Sylvia Plath and I think one day I just randomly opened it and I came across the the part on E.M. Forster and the reason I remember this so vividly um, because it was so long ago I mean it was just so many years ago because I'm 29 years old now and this had to be when I was 12 maybe 12 or 13 um, the reason it stayed with me is because he, they talked about him in terms of his humanism. I had not read any of his work by then, of course. And this was the first time I encountered a definition of humanism. Now, growing up in a small town in the South, you better believe it was a highly conservative, highly religious area. You know, you've got churches on every corner. And even at that age, at a very young age, I was an atheist. At a very young age, I rejected 
religion and superstition and things like that. And it made me feel very alone and very alienated in my life. I didn't know how to describe myself. I didn't know what I was. But I knew that religion was not enough for me. I knew that there were things that religion said that were not true. And I believed in knowledge and science and evidence and and things like that, you know. And I I knew I was an atheist, like I knew it. And I, I could conceive of myself that way. But I felt like there was something else to me that I didn't have a name for, you know, and I, through reading this E.M. Forster uh, section of this encyclopedia book, I came across the term humanism, and it was the first time where I felt like a word or a term or I guess a philosophy sort of fit me, you know, that this is something that I believed in, and um, it just profoundly... Uh, it was a profound revelation in my life. That's what I'm trying to say is that when I think of E.M. Forster, I think of this moment when I was a child reading about him and coming across the term humanism and realizing that that described what I felt, that I was not religious, but I did believe in in an ethics, in a in a way of treating other people, in a way of treating the world and the earth. And in a way of living that gave respect and dignity to all people and that focused on the world we are living in and taking care of it and taking care of the people that exist in it. And humanism described that for me. And I would describe myself as a humanist and I'd also describe myself as a democratic socialist. Those two things are really powerful in my life personally. But I want to share another definition of humanism just for a moment. And it comes from the Humanist magazine. And just in case you haven't come across this term, it might apply to you and it might resonate with you. And this, these are things that I believe in. And I didn't realize it. I didn't know what to call it until I came across this term humanism that um, E.M. Forster also believed in. So according to the Humanist magazine, humanism is a rational philosophy informed by science inspired by art, and motivated by compassion. Affirming the dignity of each human being, it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity consonant with social and planetary responsibility. It advocates the extension of participatory democracy and the expansion of the open society, standing for human rights and social justice. Free of supernaturalism, it it recognizes human beings as a part of nature and holds that values, be they religious, ethical, social, or political, have their source in human experience and culture. Humanism thus derives the goals of life from human need and interest rather than, than theological or ideological abstractions and asserts that humanity must take responsibility for its own destiny, unquote. So I love that, and that's how I came across Forster, and that's how I discovered humanism, and really discovered a part of myself. And also why this memory is so important to me is that I got so excited about this, 
And um, I was like, oh my God, I've found out about humanism um, that I told my dad about it. And that was when he was alive. He died in 2006 when I was uh, 16 years old. So I have this memory of telling him about this because my dad and I talked a lot and he was he was my best friend in life um him and my mom I'm really close to my parents and I'm still really really close to my mom but my dad and I would talk a lot and he he would like let me go on you know and let me just talk and he would just listen to me and he was really supportive and he gave me unconditional love. And um, I just have this really beautiful memory of telling him about what I had discovered and telling him about this word humanism and how I'd never heard it before. And I remember reading from the book to him, like I can see it in my mind, this memory that I have of him. And um, so, yeah, that's like a really great memory for me. And it's all because of E.M. Forster. <laughs> um, so I have sort of a really like soft spot for Forster. I don't know a lot about him. Like I said, I haven't read a ton of his books. I do remember A Passage to India. And I did love reading Morris. And I'm a literary person and I love books. Um, so I'm a big fan of Virginia Woolf. And I do think her and Forster were friends. And from what I read, he was more of a peripheral person in the Bloomsbury group. I thought he was a bit more central to it or part of it. But from what I read, he, he wasn't quite as much. I'm not an expert on modernist literature or, you know, in these things. Um, or about the Bloomsbury group. or um, I need to read more about it and learn more about it. So... I just thought he was part of Bloomsbury a bit more than I think he actually was. But his full name is Edward Morgan Forster. He was born in 1879 and he died in 1970. Five of his no novels were published in his lifetime and he also published a great deal of criticism and nonfiction. Morris, which I'm talking about the film adaptation of it, his book Morris was not published until after his death and uh that was in the 1970s so it wasn't published until the 1970s his most famous novels include a room with the view passage to india and howard's end and i've actually seen all of the merchant ivory adaptations of those i've seen a room with a view of, uh, and i've seen howard's end a passage to india was adapted by somebody else merchant ivory did not do passage to india um a Passage to India was actually his final published novel in 1924. So between 1924 and his death in 1970, he did not publish any more novels. I mean, 50 years went by almost. And he did not publish another novel. And there's a very, there's a particular reason for that. And that is, according to Kate Simonson, I read this article um, that was on the British Library website and all of my sources that I talk about in this review will be listed in the show notes of the episode in case you want to go and learn more about Forster or learn more about Morris. And I am saying Morris instead of Maurice. Here in the United States, we would say that name as Maurice. 
Um, but the way that it's pronounced in the film is Morris. And so that is the pronunciation that I'm going with because that is the way, um, the way it's pronounced in the film. And so it just seems correct to me. But I remember being really shocked by that when I saw the film, because I thought, oh, Maurice, M-A-U-R-I-C-E, Maurice. Um, and then they pronounced it Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. That's the way we would, you know, pronounce that here in the States. Um, so that was like really shocking to me. I was like, oh, they say Morris instead of Maurice. Okay. Um, just one of those things I didn't expect, you know, it's so interesting the way the British, you know, the English, the way they pronounce things sometimes very different from us here in the United States. Um, but he, he grew tired at really of writing about heterosexual love. That is why he stopped writing novels. Um, he was a gay man, but he kept it private. Um, and According to Kate Simonson, she says that um, when Forster was 16 years old in 1895, he saw what happened to Oscar Wilde, who was sentenced to two years of hard labor for the for his own homosexuality, and this was obviously a warning, you know, to other gay men, to other homosexuals. And that it made quite an impression on Forster. Um, so it's very interesting. He He's an interesting person, Forster. You know, I can't give you every aspect of his life in, in this review. But I also read a, um, a piece in The New Yorker by Eric Banks. And he says that, quote, Forster suffered from a sense of isolation living with his mother until her death in 1945, when Forster was 66, and he sought relief through travel and through friendships that often involved unrequited romantic feelings, unquote. He did fall in love with a man during World War One. That's when he first lost his virginity, and that, um, that review is very interesting. It gives sort of a sense of Forster's life. And he traveled a great deal. He obviously traveled to India, but he traveled all around the world. Um, he traveled to Egypt and, you know, all kinds of countries back then. Um, he's just a very interesting person, but he kept his sexuality pretty hidden and, and pretty private. And um, I think it's understandable that he did feel a sense of isolation and, um, you know, Morris was not published until after his death because I think Forrester was very aware that it wasn't acceptable that people were not going to be open to it, you know. So I want to talk a moment about the writing and publication of Morris the book. And this also comes from Kate Simonson. And she tells the story of what inspired it and... Um, how it was published and so I'm just going to read so I'm just going to read like this full chunk of text because I think it's important and it tells us everything really that we need to know about the book so Simonson writes quote Morris was born out of a trip in 1913 to the poet Edward Carpenter who Forrester admired during this visit George Merrill Carpenter's much younger lover, 
touched Forrester gently on the backside. The effect of this moment of connection was, Forrester recorded, as much psychological as physical. It seemed to go straight through the small of my back into my ideas without involving any thoughts. It was in that precise moment that Forster mystically conceived of writing a love story between men. After completing a first draft by 1914, Forster tentatively showed the novel to select friends and continued to do so over the forthcoming decades, reworking it as time passed. Christopher Isherwood an openly gay novelist over 20 years his junior, saw the draft in its various forms on a few occasions and repeatedly implored Forster to publish it. But Forster would not relent. Despite the passing of time and of individuals to whom he felt the revelation of his homosexuality would hurt most, Forster believed there had been no profound progression since the days of Wilde's conviction and thought that public attitudes had only incrementally shifted from ignorance and terror to familiarity and contempt. Instead, he bequeathed the manuscript of Morris to Isherwood, and a year after his death, the love story closest to Forster's heart was published. Unquote. So I think that says it all. It It's inspired in 1913 by a man touching Forster in a way that I guess he had not been touched before. And it absolutely sent a jolt through him. In 1914, he starts Morris. And it's just fascinating that this story was written more than a hundred years ago. We're in 1918. And he started it in 1914. And the story itself takes place in 1910. And how different the world is now and how similar in some ways. Um, but he did not feel the world was ready for this kind of story. And it's a story with a happy ending for a gay couple. And I'll talk more about that as I talk about the film, obviously. He wanted to give them a happy ending. And I think it's a very radical story. And it's just fascinating to think of him writing this story for decades and decades and working on it. And then, of course, it does not come out until the 1970s. And later, James Ivory will read that story and he will become inspired to create Morris. And he co-wrote the script for it, too. But I want to talk a moment about Merchant Ivory Productions. So according to Wikipedia, it was founded really in 1961. The main intention was to make films in India, but they also made films in Britain and America. Merchant Ivory Productions was founded by James Ivory, who often directed the films, and his partner Ismail Merchant, who produced them. And also many of the scripts were written by Ruth Prower Jobvala. I'm sorry if I butchered that. Um, She did not write the script for Morris, though. I got really conflicting information when I was researching. There was one source that said she was writing a novel and was not interested in writing the script. And then there was another source that said she considered Morris to be a minor work by Forster, and she wasn't interested in adapting it. 
But either way, Ivory took over and co-scripted it. And um, the reason we even have Merchant Ivory Productions was that James Ivory met Ismail Merchant in 1961. They became partners and lovers, obviously, for decades until Ismail died in 2005 but Ruth is an important part of this too the three of them together created films that um, have stood the test of time and often their films were period dramas they were period pieces and I would say that what makes their work unique and I've seen quite a few of the films I've seen A Room with a View I've obviously seen Morris I've seen Howard's End um what stand what stands out for me i love period dramas i i don't watch as many as i used to and i don't watch as many as i would like to because i do find them really comforting but i think what makes uh, merchant ivory stand out is the quality of the films like they were very good about i think the details the period details capturing the fashion capturing the the interiors you know I would say these films are very lush and glamorous uh, to a certain extent they're just beautiful they're beautiful films to look at they're aesthetically pleasing but they're often based on classic literature you know they're based on books by Forster and and um and different authors so and often there's a fidelity to the the books. I think Morris is very true to Forster's book. But Ruth was important to this. She was actually born in Germany. And she fled the country after Kristallnacht. Um, which happened just before the Second World War. Her family settled in London. Where she did survive World War II. But her father ended up committing suicide. And this information comes from um, Fariha Royson, who wrote in Hazlitt. That's my um, source for this information. And she says that Ruth's father committed suicide after he found out that 40 members of his family had died in the Holocaust. She married an Indian architect and they then moved to India. And eventually she met... uh, James Ivory and Ismail Merchant and they started to create these films together um the films received 31 Academy Award nominations and just recently James Ivory won an Academy Award for his adaptation of Andre Asiman's Call Me By Your Name and he was the oldest person to win an Academy Award he was 89 years old so he's almost 90 as I record this episode. He's 89 right now, I think. So, I mean, that's extraordinary, you know. And Ismail Merchant died in 2005, so obviously, you know, um, Merchant Ivory's Merchant Ivory Productions no longer exists, no longer is making films. But I think what they did in the 80s and the 90s especially, there's nothing else like it. I mean, I can't name another production company that did what they did, bringing bringing these period dramas to the masses and with such quality and beauty to them. So now I want to talk about Morris the film, and I'm going on longer than I expected to with all of this, but there's so much to talk about because I do love Merchant Ivory personally, and I want to watch more of their films. Um... 
I have quite a few that I'd like to see. Um, I really loved Howard's End. I enjoyed that one a lot more than I expected. And I did like A Room with a View as well. So I like, I like their films a great deal. So for The Guardian, Guy Lodge writes that Morris really did not do well at the box office. Um, it did get some prizes from the Venice Film Festival. Um, but, quote, despite admiring reviews, few followed their lead. Box office was barely a tenth of a room with the views. Where that film had been nominated for eight Oscars, winning three, Morris scraped um, a solitary bid for its costumes, unquote. So it comes off the heels of A Room with a View, which did really well for Merchant Ivory, but Morris is sort of like completely forgotten. And um, it did not get the kind of attention, maybe the kind of critical acclaim that it should have, although I do think the Venice Film Festival got it right. I do think this film holds up. And in 2017, it received, it had its 30th anniversary. You know, it's from 1987. The film is 30 years old. And when I watch it now, it's still just incredibly electrifying and beautiful. And I think it has a lot to say to us, which is what I'm going to talk about in my review, obviously. And for LA Times, Gary Goldstein talks about how Ivory was drawn to the Forrester novel, quote, after rereading it after the making of A Room with a View. He found the story of Morris, set circa 1910, timely and universal, unquote. And he tapped James Wilby to play the main character of Morris. And it's very interesting to note here um, that Julian Sands was actually supposed to play Morris, but for whatever reason, he dropped out and James Wilby was given the role. And I know everybody talks about Hugh Grant. You know, this, this film also, I think, has become a bit more popular over the years because Hugh Grant is such a huge star and his he's just a big deal, right? Um, I'm a huge fan of Hugh Grant. I love him. But I do think that James Wilby is just stunning in this film. And he carries the film. um, And I'll talk more about his performance and how much I love him in this. To me, Wilby feels very underrated as an actor. I've really enjoyed him in the different films that I've seen him in. He's also in an excellent film called um, Regeneration, which is based on the book by Pat, Bar- Pat Barker, which is set during the First World War. And it's also about um, gay men, uh, gay writers of that time, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, and so on. And it's a really excellent book, excellent film as well. But, um, you know, it's 1987, And what was fascinating to me researching this film about the actors especially is that Hugh Grant and James Wilby had no problem playing gay characters. And that was really surprising because you would think in the 1980s there would be a bit of a stigma to it. And I mean, maybe since it was made in Britain, I don't know the attitudes in Britain towards homosexuality back then. I can only speak from an American perspective, right? But in my episode about Desert Hearts by Donna Deitch, and this was a really important film from 1985 about um, a lesbian love story. It was actually one of the first 
cinematic depictions of a happy ending, you know, of um, a romantic, happy relationship for two women. Um, actually, the actresses in that film, uh, I don't know if the actresses or, or somebody, um, like in an interview or something like that, I think it was the actresses that said it, but they were kind of told that they shouldn't do the film that it could hurt their career or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been a little while since I did my episode about Desert Hearts, which I really love that film. And so I think it's really great the way, especially James Wilby talks about it, that he had no problem. This is a film with full frontal male nudity. This is a film with men kissing, with men touching each other. It's a very intimate sexual film at times, sexually explicit as well. Um, and Wilby had no problem with it. For him, this was his big break. He wasn't a well-known actor at that time. And so he was just happy. In one interview I read, he did like a little jig. And he was dancing when he got the call that he got Morris. Because he knew that this was really his big break. So the actors were really mature about it, you know, and I love that. And Rupert Graves was the same way. Rupert Graves is in it as well. And he's, I I think he's a very well-known actor, especially in England. I love Rupert Graves. Um, I've seen him in so many things over the years because I have a mild obsession with British television, (laughs) especially detective shows, especially if they star women as the detectives. Um, So Rupert Graves, I know pretty well. And um, he's been in some other films as well. So I think the cast of this film is quite extraordinary. You've got Wilby, you've got Hugh Grant, you've got Rupert Graves. There's even some cameos, like for a, for a scene or two, Helen, Helena Bonham Carter's in it. And she's so adorable. And Ben Kingsley is in the film. He plays a hypnotist. Um, so it's really interesting, the cast of this film as well. And I really love this story. Wilby talks about him and Rupert Graves. And um, again, this just speaks to how committed the actors were. And I think that's partly what makes the film work. I think if you had actors who were squeamish or if you had actors who were scared of, you know, their masculinity being um, challenged or something, it wouldn't work. And I love how Wilby says... I kept it quite simple. I didn't overcomplicate it. The naked emotion is simply love, isn't it? Unquote. And that's so true. This is a film about love, you know. But him and Graves, um, they had to perform one of their sexual scenes pretty early in the filming process. Um, it was the boathouse love scene. And um, they were only a few days into the shooting. And so Wilby says that... Um, the night before, quote, Rupert and I went out for a meal and didn't even mention the film, just talked to each other, Wilby said. Then after, on the walk back to the hotel, I said, well, I just think we should go for it. And he went, yes, so do I. And that was all we said. The next day on the set, when it came to the moment where they kiss, Rupert stuck his tongue down my throat, and that was the end of that, unquote. I love that. Like, they were in... Rupert Graves was in, Hugh Grant was in, Wilby was in, and it was about playing the part and being true to these characters. And I think for 1987, that's pretty great. 
And it was the same with Desert Hearts, the actresses for that. You know, they were there to tell that story and they wanted to tell it. And, um, and I love that because they could have easily, you know, been like, oh no, you know, I won't do that. Um, especially in the 1980s, it's like the height of the AIDS crisis, this height of, you know, this homophobia, you know, and especially in the 1980s that we have. I mean, gay men are literally dying and the government is not doing anything. That's the time in which this film is coming out. And I'll talk about that more in my full review. Um, but um, it it did have limited success. And James Ivory obviously believes that part of that was because it was a, a gay film. It was a film about gay characters. Um, but he did say um, that over the years, he's discovered that women quite like the film and young girls as well. Um, he said, quote, it's not entirely a gay film. It's a genuine romance, a sexually charged romance. And that appeals to most everybody, unquote. And I agree, like, I'm a woman, like, and this film absolutely just has taken me over. Like, I've become obsessed with it. I absolutely adore this film. And um, so it's a film that I think appeals to all kinds of different people. If you like a period drama, you know, if you like you know, a beautiful, um, period piece. It's great for that. If you like, um, uh, if you like films about gay characters or gay men, if you like films about romance and love, um, there's so much there. I think, think there's a lot to the film and I'm just still really surprised that it didn't get that sort of attention. And I still feel like even 30 years later, even though it's been rediscovered, it's been reclaimed, People, I think, have started to champion it. It's still not on the level of A Room with a View or Howard's End. You know, it's still not on that level for Merchant Ivory Productions. And having seen all of those films, I still prefer Morris. I mean, it just took me over when I first saw it. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And lastly, I just want to end by saying that James Ivory actually thought about a sequel. He said that no one approached him about doing a sequel. And I just think this is fascinating. Um, No one asked him to do it. But in his mind, he had imagined the way that a sequel would be. And um, we don't know yet if there will be a sequel to Call Me By Your Name. Um, You know, Luca Guadagnino has said that there will be or there might be. But you just don't know, right? I mean, we we really don't know if there will be um, for certain. We don't know if James Ivory will be part of it or will script it. So all of that seems to be a little bit up in the air with Call Me By Your Name, which I really love that film. And James Ivory wrote the screenplay for it. And Luca Guadagnino directed it. Um, But it's so interesting to think of a sequel for Morris because I myself am really fascinated by the possibilities of it, that that it ends in a very open-ended way in the book and in the film as well, where these men go off and we're not exactly sure what happens to them, but we know that they're, they end up together. So this is, um, this is James Ivory's idea for what he would have done with the sequel. Um, 
And this is Darren Scott in The Independent. This is my source. He writes, quote, Ivory wallows in the scenario he would have filmed. A first World War drama where Clive, the first love interest for Morris, who spurns him in favor of marriage, would have joined some posh regiment and gone off and been killed, while Morris became a conscientious objector. Alec, the gamekeeper who would eventually win Morris's heart, would go off and shoot the Huns, <laughs> whatever that means, unquote. So I guess in James Ivory's mind, Clive would have died in the First World War because the film ends really in 1913, right before the First World War in 1914. And I'm obsessed with the First World War. None of you know this, but I am. I watch a lot of films about it. I read about it. Um, it was such a cataclysmic thing. I mean, people talk more about the Second World War, but the First World War was truly cataclysmic, and it changed art. It changed the world. Like, it changed everything. That's how we get modernism it's how we get a lot of different art movements and things like that. So if you're interested in literature, you can't not be interested in the First World War, I think, personally. Because it changes writing. It changes everything. It changes art. It changes society in so many countries. Um, so it's interesting to think of what would have happened to these characters. They would not have escaped unscathed the First World War any of them would have been implicated in it. So it's interesting to think of Clive going off and possibly being killed, Morris being a conscientious objector, according to James Ivory, and then Alec, you know, bravely going into battle um, and doing that. I don't like that use of the word Huns, obviously that's problematic, but um, but this idea that Alec would have gone in and, and fought in the war so I think that I think that maybe would have been an interesting sequel, but I'm glad that we still have the film as it is. And so now I'll talk all about how I feel about the film, why it's important to me, and why I had to cover it on the podcast. going to be totally honest with you. I love and adore this film. I love, love, love it. And I have no way of hiding it. <laughs> and so this review might get long. I have been trying to get the episode shorter, but I feel the need to just gush about this film. And I have so many thoughts and feelings and everything. So I apologize if it does get long, um, but I unapologetically, unabashedly love this film. It's my favorite by James Ivory that I have seen. Haven't seen his total filmography, obviously, but it's my favorite James Ivory. It is just, it's it enchants me. Um, I saw the film a few years ago, probably around 2015, and... I have very intense memories of when I first saw it, and after I saw the film, I read the book by Forster, 
And I'm also deeply, deeply in love with the soundtrack. It's by Richard Robbins. And he did quite a few soundtracks for James Ivory films. Unfortunately, Morris and a lot of other Richard Robbins's soundtracks are not available on Spotify. But I do have a copy of the Morris soundtrack because it's just so dear to me. And um, lately, after re-watching the film for this podcast, it's all I've been listening to. I've just been obsessively listening to the Morris soundtrack. And honestly, I feel like I'm still in the afterglow of re-watching it for this episode. And um, I first saw it, I think, in 2015, maybe 2014, around that time, I would say. And I think I saw it on Turner Classic Movies. Don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure that's where I saw it. I recorded it. Um, I think I had it on DVR at that time. And this was back in the house that I lost. So I lost my house in late 2015. So it was definitely before that. And I remember, you know, being in the living room and watching this film on the television because I had recorded it. And it just came to me at a certain time in my life. I have a similar memory of Barbara Loden's Wanda. That's another film that got shown on Turner Classic Movies at one time a few years ago. Um, And I watched that. And it was such a powerful film for me. And the same is with Morris. And I think because I had it on DVR, I am almost positive that I watched it twice. That I watched it once and then I was so in love with it that I watched it a second time immediately. Like maybe the next day or maybe in the next few days after I saw it. And I remember that too. I remember this this feeling, this enchantment that came over me. And how I wanted to live inside this film. Because it's so dreamy and it's so aesthetically beautiful. And... I do find James Willoughby and Hugh Grant very attractive. I'm not going to go on and on about it. I don't want to objectify them or anything like that. Um, But I do just find both of them very beautiful, especially James Willoughby personally. Um, And so they're just very gorgeous men. I can't help it. Um, I do kind of swoon over them in this film because they're young and they're just, I think, at the height of their beauty, really, as men. And, um, but like Ivory said, it's a romantic film. So even though I'm a woman and I don't have any personal experience with this story of two gay men, um, that's not part of my experience, obviously, but it's the romance of it. It's the love story of it. It's the way it just swept me away, I think, and the dreamy cinematography and the music. And I just felt like bewitched I just felt like it put this spell on me and so that's why I wanted to talk about it for the podcast because this is one of my favorite romantic films one of my favorite love stories even though there is heartbreak you know this is really I mean I keep assuming people who listen to this know what it's about but it's about a young man named Morris and it takes place in 1910 and he meets um, his name is Morris Hall And he goes to Cambridge, and he meets Clive Durham, and he falls in love with him. And they have sort of a bit of a tortured relationship for several years. 
Um, Clive ends up getting married. Clive um, wants to maintain the purity of their relationship and he does not want to have physical um, relations, you know, sex with Morris, which is very difficult for Morris to handle because Clive is like the love of his life. This is a great love story to me. That's the way I interpret it as this great love story. And then things fall apart with Clive and Morris. And Morris is forced to confront that, to confront that heartbreak. And he eventually meets someone else named Alex Scudder, who um, works um, as sort of a servant or um, a groundskeeper or whatever at Clive's estate. So he's um, a working class person, you know. So there's class involved here as well as sexuality. And Morris falls in love with Alec. And in the end, they go away together. And it's this happy ending for a gay love story, which is pretty rare at times. It also contains um, male nudity and male sex scenes. And it's really an unabashed and beautiful celebration of male love, you know, that we don't often get to see of, of queer love. And so that's, that's in a nutshell what the film's about. And for me, I sort of break it up into two parts. There is the, the Morris and Clive part, which takes up a huge bulk of the film. And then there is the Morris and Alec part. And I just love this film. And I'm going to tell you why, obviously, but it's like, my feelings about it are so deep and I'm I troubled and I have trouble communicating it to you but it hit me at a certain time in my life this film like I said I remember being in my house which was my childhood home the only home I'd ever had until I lost it which has been really devastating to me and so I remember being in the living room I remember watching this film and just going crazy for it you know I was like oh my god you know and then I watched it a second time because as soon as it ended, I needed it again. I needed to enter this world. And it's been the same revisiting it for the podcast this week. I mean, it's probably been a little bit over 24 hours, maybe 48 hours since I watched it. And I'm still living in the dream of it. You know, this is what cinema can do, I think. And of course, I have nobody to talk to about this stuff. This is why I started the podcast this is really why I continue it because I have no one to go to and say, you know what? I just saw Morris and I want to talk about this film and why don't you watch it with me? And I don't have anybody to share myself with. I don't have anybody to share my thoughts and feelings with these very deep, almost unspeakable things. And that's what I'm trying to articulate. Um, but this film is so deep for me. I can't even explain it to you, but I'm going to try. And there's so much there. You know, it's really a coming of age in a way. It's a man awakening to his sexuality. It's about first love and first heartbreak. But it is also about very serious things like homophobia, about the criminalization of homosexuality in England in 1910 at the time. It's about repression. It's about the pain of always being seen as wrong. Because Morris struggles with that throughout the film. Of the shame and the self-hatred he feels for being gay. 
and it's heartbreaking to see it. I mean, this is a man tormented at times, but this is a man who also finds salvation in love. This is a man who chooses love and who believes in love, and that is the difference between him and Clive, and I'll talk more about that later. Um, Morris is a romantic, I think, and for me, it's always about Morris. I mean, Clive is his great love, his first big love, but the character that I I deeply connect to is Morris, because this is a man struggling to find who he is, and um, yeah, and we cannot ignore the context in which this film is made. This is a beautiful film that celebrates queer love at a time when gay men were dying at unprecedented rates from the AIDS epidemic and the American government did nothing about it. Their lives were considered expendable and disposable and we lost a whole generation of gay men and, it, and we don't talk enough about it. There's not enough art about it. Um, I think it's why Angels in America hits me so hard even now. And Angels in America is really important to me. And I still need to watch the miniseries and um, all kinds of different things. There was recently The Normal Heart. That explored it a little bit. But I don't think that we have fully confronted or acknowledged or mourned those lives. All the men who died. And it's something that I love about Pose. The series that's on FX right now. It recently had its finale. And I'm actually a few episodes behind. Um, so I need to get caught up. I don't know everything that's happened. It talks about the AIDS ep- epidemic in the 1980s. It absolutely explores it. And looks at it in a way that is very moving and very haunting. And so even though Morris is not about that, it's made and released at a time when queerness, with when gay people, you know, are, are, are under attack. Where people are dying from AIDS and you have religious groups who are celebrating it, who are glad, who think that AIDS is a punishment for their immorality. So when we are in periods like this, and I would argue that we're going through a time now in the United States that is profoundly disturbing and frightening for queer people, for women, for people of color, for all of us who live under oppression and live marginalized lives, we're going through a time when I think we're under threat again, you know, and the the forces of white supremacy and um, patriarchy are very dangerous right now. But that's why we need art that affirms our identities and celebrates our lives. And I just imagine a young gay person, possibly a gay man, but maybe a gay woman, going to see Morris in a theater or seeing Morris at their local um, video rental service. And I want to imagine that kid seeing this film and what it must have meant to them when they may have never seen two men kissing on film. They may not have seen male bodies 
naked, you know, and, and loving each other. Um, I wonder what that meant to them. You know, if you have your own experience with seeing Morris for the first time, and if it was intense for you, and I mean, please um, message me, you know, please reach out to me on my social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have um, an email, herheadinfilms at gmail.com. You know, contact me and let me know. I'd love to know your stories with this film because for me, it's so intense. And so this film is made during the AIDS epidemic. And I think that's really important. And that's something that I wanted to talk about for a moment. And um, I do think in a way that Morris is trying to resist the society under which he lives. This is a powerful look at at oppression, at, at repression, at... How do you live in a society where you're told from the time you're a child that your sexuality and what you desire and and who you are um, is wrong and disgraceful and criminal? That there is something monstrous about you. And Morris, I think, continually tries to resist that. And he tries to affirm love. And I think he chooses love and connection. And, um... So now I want to talk about the film. I'll talk about different scenes. This opening, the opening scene for this film is fascinating. It shows Morris as a young boy. He's on the beach and his teacher is really giving him the birds and the bees speech. But this speech is also really important because it, um, it shows us the society that Morris is living in. This a society that only acknowledges and recognizes heterosexual love that only recognizes men and women having sex. And what his teacher does is he's making drawings on the sand and he draws like a woman's private parts and he draws a man's penis and he's trying to explain to Morris, you know, that one day this is what you'll do. You'll be with a woman and you'll have sex with her and you'll have children and that will be the greatest glory of your life. There's only one path for you. That's it, you know, and if you're not on board with it, something's wrong with you, and it's interesting how much later in the film, Morris will say that from a very early age, from the time he was a little boy, he felt these things for men, he he felt this way, um, possibly even on that beach with that teacher, and, um, so this scene, it sets up for us the society under which Morris lives of repression and heterosexuality, obviously. And we can see, I think, how Forrester, how Forrester, sorry, um, I keep wanting to say Forrester and it's Forrester. Um, we can see how he got very tired of writing those love stories about heterosexuality, about men and women and how he needed to write this story that being touched by that man and it's so interesting some of the parallels with call me by your name because um there is a scene in call me by your name where elio is touched by oliver and it is like this jolt to his body and even though there's nothing in this film that shows that oh well there kind of is a little bit um when when Clive and Morris first touch each other and first hold each other, 
Um, but, but Morris itself is catalyzed by a jolt, by a touch, the way that you see in Call Me By Your Name. There's also, um, there's a scene where Morris and Clive, and I'll talk about it in a moment, where they're in, like, um, they're lying in the grass kissing, and there's a very similar scene in Call Me By Your Name. You know, with Call Me By Your Name, Oliver, um, is going to get married, and we see how in in Morris Clive eventually does get married. So and there's some there's some similarities there that I think are sort of interesting when you think of how James Ivory was involved in Call Me by Your Name. But this opening scene is just it's funny to an extent, but it's also for me unsettling because it is literally illustrating that there is only one kind of love. There's only one kind of desire between a man and a woman. And of course, with this novel, and E.M. Forster is challenging that. And obviously, James Ivory is challenging it too with the film. Years pass, Morris goes off to Cambridge University, and it's 1910 now, which is an interesting time period because it's four years before World War I. And as I said earlier, World War I was this really cataclysmic event, and it's not exactly the same as the AIDS epidemic, but World War I slaughtered an entire generation of men in Europe. You know, read something like All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark, if I have his name right. I still remember the power of that book when I read it in high school. You know, read something like All Quiet on the Western Front. And I actually want to explore more of his work. Um, Pat Barker has a trilogy about different war poets who were in the First World War. Um, It's a fascinating time period. A lot changed, but millions of men died. You know, an entire young generation was erased and wiped off the face of the earth. And it had a profound effect on the people who were left behind and on the societies that were shattered by it. And it's not the same, but in the 80s, you have something similar where all these young people, all these young men die from AIDS. It's a similar cataclysmic event, in my opinion. And it, for the queer community, community, it was cataclysmic. For people who, know, who knew those who died, it was cataclysmic. You know, this was catastrophic what happened. Thousands and thousands of people disappearing, really. You know, they're, they're dying. And the government is allowing it. The state is allowing it by inaction and not doing anything about it because those lives are not seen in Judith Butler's words, as grievable. They're not life. Their lives didn't matter. So um, so this is an interesting period just four years before World War One. And I love when Morris and Clive meet each other. Um, he It's kind of haphazardly. Morris is trying to find a friend. He goes to that friend's room and... Clive is there instead, Clive Durham, and he goes back to Clive's place, and they're playing the piano, and um, I think they're playing the piano, and Morris just loves this music that's being played. He's really getting into it, and there's this moment when Clive is eating an apple, 
and he lets Morris take a bite of it. And then he takes another bite of it. And this is another similarity um, with Call Me By Your Name, where there's a peach. There's a peach scene, as we all know. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, Obviously, if you like Morris, please watch Call Me By Your Name and vice versa. If you like Call Me By Your Name, Morris is your film. You really should see it. I think they're, I'm not going to say they're in conversation, but I think there's some parallels that are very fascinating. And so I absolutely love when they share that apple. I don't know if I noticed it the first time I saw the film, but that intimacy between them immediately that they've just met and they're already eating after each other. I don't know about you, but eating after somebody is, it's not something that I do. You know, I think you have to have a level of comfort with somebody to do that. But I found something erotic about that moment that their lips are touching the same surface, that they're taking one another in through this apple. And it's sort of a subtle way. It's like they haven't kissed yet. They haven't come into any sexual contact yet. But through that apple, you know, there there is some kind of connection there. Um, and throughout the film, we are given examples of the distaste and the disgust for homosexuality at one point Morris is in a class and they're reading from some kind of Greek text and the um the professor says that the person reading the passage should omit the unspeakable vice of the Greeks and so immediately in that moment there's a message that homosexuality is unacceptable in this world at Cambridge University, but in the world at large. Um, I thought that was an interesting scene. Throughout the film, it's peppered. Um, Ivory peppers throughout the film. These very unsettling scenes when you become aware that Morris and Clive and anybody who's queer within that society is under surveillance in a certain way, that they are being watched. Um... And, and that's an important part of the film. And and I'll talk a bit more about it as I go. I'm just sort of going scene, scene by scene, talking about different things. Um, I have to talk about one of my favorite scenes in the film. And that's when Clive and Morris first touch each other. And it's very interesting in this film um, how certain spaces function and create a sense of privacy that you're you're always aware like i said that these characters are under surveillance that if they touch each other or or anything like that when people are around that it can be misconstrued um and they will often surreptitiously try to find ways to hold each other's hands or or to do things and so they're not always alone. It's very hard in this world to find privacy, to find a space where there's not other people and their prying eyes always there to watch you. And of course, heterosexual couples don't have to worry about that. They don't have to be scared that somebody's going to come across them holding hands. And you see how this homophobia shapes people's everyday lives, and it still does. 
And there's a really great special on Netflix right now called Nanette, and I'm sure you've heard of it, by Hannah Gadsby. And um, she talks about that. She talks about the pain of living under this, this kind of society that is constantly telling you you're wrong, is constantly saying there's something wrong with you, that the default is white, straight, male. And if you are anything else then you are not acceptable and you are wrong and you are, you know, you're not to be tolerated, that you're worthless, you're nothing. And she gets to the pain of that in that special. If you've not seen it, I would absolutely uh, recommend it to you. So this scene of Clive and Morris alone together in a room is, is a time for them to have some sort of privacy and intimacy and Morris just starts to rub Clive's hair. He starts to stroke it. And because things are so repressed for them, these small gestures are imbued with profound meaning and eroticism. Um, and he just keeps stroking Clive's hair. And then Morris rests his head on top of Clive's head. And Clive gets up and he puts his arms around Morris and they embrace each other and the look on Morris's face is one that I will never forget. It's like, I would imagine it's like when Forster had that jolt, you know, when that person touched his backside and it catalyzed and it gave birth to this story, this beautiful love story. I would imagine that it, that was similar, that there's this look on Morris's face of complete awakening. Um, it's like he's never been touched like, like that. And it's just, he basks in it almost. But they can hear people coming. They can hear this commotion outside the door. And all of a sudden these men uh, break in and it breaks them apart. You know, they have to suddenly, uh, you know, tear themselves away from each other. But they have finally acknowledged and shown their love for each other. Um, so, and then later on they skip class and this will actually have big repercussions for Morris because they drive past the Dean who's calling for Morris and Morris ignores him and him and Clive are going out to the country, um, to the countryside and that will actually lead to Morris being kicked out of Cambridge and eventually Morris will go and work on the stock market. I think, I think he becomes a stockbroker. But I also love this scene where they go into the countryside and they're lying together in the grass. Even though they're in a outdoor space, an outside space, very different from the indoor space they were in when they first touched each other. Because they're in nature and nobody's around, they have a sense of privacy. And this scene really reminds me of that Call Me By Your Name scene where they're in the grass and kissing and things like that. Um... And they're lying there together and they're free to show their love and affection, you know. And I really love this exchange. Clive says, I would have gone through life half awake if you'd had the decency to leave me alone. And Morris replies, perhaps we woke each other. Perhaps we woke up each other. So again, this goes back to that sense of an awakening of somebody who has been sleepwalking perhaps through his life, Morris. 
and how meeting Clive is what wakes him up and how they wake each other up. Um, and, and so the love between the two of them is so beautiful. To me, this is just such a, a sweeping romantic story in a way. Um, the romance between Clive and Morris is always central. And it's central to Morris's life. And when it doesn't work out later on, and I'll talk more about that, it is devastating to him. But it did serve a purpose in his life. And he wouldn't be who he was if he hadn't met Clive. Clive is the thing that wakes him up. It's the, it's the alarm clock, the alarm bell that wakes him up to his life. And Morris is deeply in love with Clive and he wants to have sex with him. That is clear. He wants to have Clive mind, body, and soul, and he can't. Because for whatever reason, Clive is unwilling to have sex. He wants to keep their relationship platonic, and he does not want to consummate their relationship. And so Clive and Morris never have sex in the film. They hold each other. They Do they kiss? I think they kiss at some point. Um, but, and, and, you know, they lie together and, but Clive is not able to take that step. He wants to remain pure, I think. You know, both of them struggle with their homosexuality in different ways. And I'm not here to condemn Clive or to condemn people in 1910 who were not able to be open about their sexuality. This is a time when homosexuality is criminalized when people are going to prison um you know oscar wilde is still looming in in the public imagination of what happens to a man who loves another man everything is on the line you know and clive is just not able to to take that step and the stakes are even higher for Clive, actually. Morris just lives with his mother and his two sisters, and he seems he's not working class by any means. I mean, I don't know the intricacies of the British class system. I know that there is a rigid sort of class thing in Britain, more so than in the United States, possibly, and especially back in that time. Um, but you can tell that Clive is on another level of wealth, that he is perhaps like the gentry or something, or in the uh, an aristocrat or something like that. He has inherited um, Pendersley Park. That's where he lives. And it's been left to him, and it will be his once he gets married. And it's this, this huge, grand estate. And... I think Clive is expected to possibly go into politics and things like that. So Clive has a lot more to lose. You know, he has this estate. He has this um, this great deal of wealth. And Morris is comfortable. Morris is, I would say, maybe part of the professional class or something. He does quite look down upon... Uh, the poor, like there's some scenes in the film where he doesn't speak too well of the working class. Um, so uh, Morris is invited to Pendersley Park, and this will sort of become like his second home. Um, him and Clive will uh, be there together at times, and um, 
at one point Clive even puts him in this room so that he can access it more easily and a maid comes in and they're just still lying in bed together and that sort of shocked me that they didn't care that the that the maid could see you know um so they do feel a certain amount of freedom in Pendersley at times um But there's another scene um, that reminds us of this constant surveillance. Not just that the maids can catch them together. Um, They ride their horse over to a house that's on the estate. And this is a really dreamy scene. I don't know. There's like this beautiful mist in the air. And um, they think that they're alone. And Morris goes to hug Clive. And all of a sudden, one of the servants rides by on his bicycle. And he has sort of glimpsed them hugging each other and um he kind of has this look on his face right and so again again we're reminded that they are always being watched there is always a certain amount of fear that governs their life and governs their connection to each other but over time they continue to stay in touch their families even become a bit closer and to other people on the outside they're just really good friends and um that's how they seem to be um to others but something happens and this is a really important part of the film they have a friend from cambridge and his name is risley and he gets caught soliciting another man and he gets arrested and this is the most powerful part of the film that reminds us of the threat that these men lived under the the threat that gay lesbian you know queer people lived under um risley is arrested he is put on trial he gets sentenced to six months of hard labor he loses his status he loses his reputation um his life is basically ruined because he was found with a man So the consequences to being gay in this society were very real and very frightening. And Risley even reaches out to Clive to give him a testimonial, perhaps to help him in the trial, and Clive refuses. Um, Clive says that it would endanger his own position, you know. And it's, it's a moment, I guess, of moral weakness or moral failing for Clive. That he is thinking of his own self-preservation and he refuses to help his friend. And But at the same time, I have sympathy for Clive because he does have a lot to lose. Everyone has a lot to lose in that situation, you know? Um, everything is in danger. I can understand not wanting to be found out. I can understand not wanting to go to prison and doing hard labor. But after this Risley incident, I think the relationship between Morris and Clive drastically starts to change. Because I would say that Clive goes through something of a nervous breakdown. He's at um, he's at Morris's house and he just starts um, hysterically crying. He passes out and then when he wakes up, he's crying. Um, and so... I think he has a nervous breakdown. There's really nothing physically wrong with him. He begins to change. He begins to pull away from Morris. I think that seeing what Risley went through is, is a reminder of what could happen to him. And I think it scares him deeply and it troubles him. Um, 
I just feel like with after the Risley incident, it just feels to me like the relationship between Morris and Clive um, starts to change, you know, and it's a gradual thing. And um, and then flash forward and it's like 1912. So a little time has passed and um, Clive goes to see Morris and and we're reminded also that World War One is on the horizon because Morris's sisters want to practice their bandaging techniques on Clive. They want to like put bandages on him and stuff. So we're again reminded of that dark cloud of the First World War that's on the horizon. Um, and Clive wants to talk to Morris and he talks about how he wants wouldn't it be nice if they could be open about a relationship open about a love and they could be with a woman and not have to worry so much and so you can tell that Clive is starting to feel this pressure to marry and he worries that they're risking their careers their family their status by continuing their friendship or their relationship even though it is not sexual it's platonic um and it just it starts to just become this really uh almost violent thing between Morris and Clive. Clive tries to leave and Morris won't let him. He tries to kiss Clive, but they start to fight and Clive's lip starts bleeding and and it's just this very it's like this boiling point. It's like this eruption and they can't ever really be the same afterwards. And Morris starts to break down and he starts to cry. And he says, what an ending. What's going to happen to me? And then Clive leaves. You know, from Morris's perspective, this is the only man that he's ever really loved. This is the man that awakened him to love, to connection, to his own sexuality. And I think he can feel Clive pushing away. He can feel the distance that's starting to open up between the two of them. And it's heartbreaking for Morris to realize it. And that's where I think that violent interaction comes from, is these emotions of wanting to have Clive, of wanting to be with him, but living in a world that won't allow it. And Clive himself is not able to allow it. Um, that even if they could go away to away together, that Clive would never do it. Clive would never give up Pendersley. He would never give up his status. Um, he just can't be what Morris needs, I think. Um, but that scene, watching it again, was really devastating to watch because it is, I think, Morris losing all of his illusions and finally realizing that this is pretty much over you know that this is how it's going to end and the two of them can't really be together the way that Morris had probably dreamed of or hoped for and um, that they live in a world that just won't allow it and that will really tear them apart and um, I, I that that breaks my heart what's going to happen to me there, there's always that sense about Morris that 
that there, there's a sense of him being lost. I think that's what I, I just relate to him as a character. I feel some kind of deep connection with this person, like with Morris Hall. There's this sense of him being lost, him trying to find his way. Um, he seems to be searching for something, you know, and I really think that in a way, I don't know if those of you who have read the book or watched the film will agree, I feel like in a way Clive leads him on, that Clive sort of strings him along to a certain extent. I'm not saying Morris is innocent in it. He goes along, you know, he's he's willing to be sort of his secret companion or something. But Clive, I think, knows the power he has over Morris, and he just sort of strings him along to a certain extent for years. And um, because he himself is not able to acknowledge the love or to or to be with Morris in a more real and meaningful way but they have to keep it secret and you know at any time Clive maybe could have said I can't do this but Clive sort of keeps it going for a while until that scene really when you start to feel it really crumbling and then we're in 1913 and this is a year, remember, before the First World War. Um, a, a war that Forster lived through, you know. Forster lived through both of the World Wars. The First World War and the Second World War. Um, he lived probably a really fascinating life. I need to get more biographical information about him. I should probably read uh, more of his work and more about him. Um but in 1913, we see Morris, and he's teaching boxing at a local gym. And there's this amazing scene where he's in the locker room, and it just captured me. I don't know. First off, James Wilby looks gorgeous, you know. He looks gorgeous in every scene. He looked gorgeous in the grass with Hugh Grant, and Hugh Grant looks gorgeous. You know, I, I, I can't not say it. These were beautiful, beautiful men, okay? <laughs> and James Wilby has this beautiful sort of like wheat-colored blonde hair. I mean, his hair is just gorgeous. Um, and and he's in a locker room taking his shirt off, okay? <laughs> okay, the scene is memorable for me, but he's just very beautiful. Um, but he's in the locker room, you know, undressing, looking very attractive, and he sees these men over in one of the rooms and they're completely naked. And this is really, I think, the first time we see full frontal nudity in the film. And you better believe I'm going to talk about male full frontal nudity, okay? Because it's so incredibly rare. I myself get taken aback by it because it's so rare. Um, we see women all the time in films showing their breasts showing different parts of their bodies, but it is very rare to see male nudity. It's still like, I don't know, like I never expect to see it. So it just, uh, and it's obviously a sexist thing. You know, they don't want to show, you know, if men are the predominant directors of these films, then they don't want to show male nudity. They're going to want to objectify, sexualize women and show women's bodies. Um, so I think it's interesting to see sort of a queer male gaze in Morris and through James Ivory. That's something else I love about this film, um, is that we do get to see, um, a celebration, not just of male love, um, but male sexuality and of the male body, the male form. You know, I'm, 
I'm a I'm I'm your average person. Like I like to I'm I like to see a, a beautiful people. You know, a beautiful woman, a beautiful man. So I have no problem with you know seeing male nudity at all. But it's just so rare. But I got to thinking, you know, this film with James Ivory, it's like a queer male gaze. It's there's still a male gaze there. But it's a queer male gaze. It's a gay man making a film about gay men and celebrating the beauty of that and celebrating their bodies. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just a human body. Um, so he sees these naked men and we see all of it. Um, but what's intense about this scene is the way Morris sits there and looks at it and his longing is so palpable his unsatiated sexual desire you know he has been pining after clive for years it's 1913 they've met each other in 1910 it's not clear whether morris has had sex with any other men this is someone who has desire and he wants it to be fulfilled and it's not it's not been fulfilled. You know, he has this longing, he has this aching to be with Clive, to be with another man sexually. And he's not able to have that. And, um, his desire, I think is always very present in the film. Um, and in this scene in particular, I just thought it was really, really powerful, you know? Um, so Clive does become engaged and he, does get married he even invites morris to the wedding so it's so interesting the way he continues to keep morris close to him he continues to keep morris involved in his life even as he gets married even as he insists on having just a platonic relationship with morris but he is almost just as dependent on morris as morris is on him and it's almost like the two of them there's like this codependency in a way. It's like they don't know how to fully break apart from one another. They are so dependent on one another. It's, you know, it's this unfulfilled thing between the two of them because they've never had sex. They've never consummated that relationship. But there's this very deep emotional connection and so that's also what I love about the film. And I wonder if that's why women react to it the way that they do. Because this is not a film that's just about sex. That's part of it. You know, sexuality is part of all of us. You know, we all are sexual beings. Um, but what this film is really about is a deep emotional connection and romance and desire. And I love the sex scenes in this film. I love the romantic scenes in this film because I love the desire that you feel from the characters I love I, I was thinking about it recently I really hate heterosexual sex scenes like I can't explain it every time I watch a film about a man and a woman to me the sex scenes just ring hollow they don't ring true to me they always prioritize male desire. They always prioritize male pleasure. They tend to objectify the woman. They tend to not care about female desire at all. Um, and that bothers me. 
And so as a woman watching a heterosexual sex scene, I don't feel anything. I wouldn't say that I find it erotic at all because it's not about... I think there's a power dynamic that's there too. There's a power deferential that the woman is not allowed to ask for pleasure. The woman is not allowed to show her desire. The woman is not allowed to be equal to the man. That it's always lopsided, that power dynamic, that power difference. That the man takes control, the man dominates, the man makes the decisions. His pleasure and his desire is paramount and when I watch queer sex scenes I find them much more erotic and much more satisfying when I watch Desert Hearts for instance or I watch Call Me By Your Name or I watch Blue is the Warmest Color even though it's problematic and there's definitely a male gaze going on Um, and when I watch Morris when I see those love scenes When I see them kissing, you know, that to me is much more erotic, I guess, because I feel like, you know, it's two women or it's two men. And it's like, maybe there's a power balance there, you know, and, and it feels to me mutual. It feels like there is a sense of mutual pleasure in the scenes that, um, both sides want to pleasure each other, that both sides want to give and receive and be there for each other. There's something more giving and there's a generosity to it. And there's just a romance to it. I can't quite explain it. But when I watch heterosexual sex scenes, I do not like it. Whereas when I watch Morris or I watch Desert Hearts, those feel more loving to me. They feel more romantic. They feel more erotic to me. And I don't know if any of you agree with that. You know, I don't know if any of you can relate to that at all. But it's just something I've been thinking about recently, especially watching Morris again. Um, That I do love when I love when they're just holding each other. You don't even see that in heterosexual films. Like you don't you don't even see a man and a woman just holding each other, just touching each other's skin. There's beautiful moments in Morris where they're just lying in each other's arms or holding each other's hands or, you know, stroking each other's hair. And that was something that I loved about Blue is the Warmest Color, too. That the most erotic scenes in that film were not the sex scenes, but they were just when they kissed or when they were just luxuriating in each other's bodies. And I feel that way about Morris, too, that when they're just reveling in each other's bodies and skin and in connection and in physical contact, there's just something so beautiful about that. These films tend, they're celebrating love. They're celebrating connection. They're celebrating the beauty and pleasure of sex, you know, in a way that I just find much more um, compelling, I think I would say. And... After Clive gets married, Morris really starts to struggle with his sexuality. And I think he feels like, where do I go from here? Where do I go now? The one man that I loved is gone, is not accessible to me. And I think he starts to want to try to change himself, to fix himself. And obviously he sees, well, Clive can get married to a woman. Clive can be with a woman. So 
maybe I should too. I'm just interpreting it that way, that several things are happening. And Morris starts to question himself. He goes to a family friend, and he says that he is the Oscar Wilde kind. And he's trying to, to confess, you know, his homosexuality. But the man just kind of... He, he won't really listen. And he says, oh, you know, you'll just find a nice girl and everything will be fine. Um, and that's also when he says that he's been like this for as long as he can remember. Which reminded me of that first scene on the beach when Morris is a little boy. That probably even then, you know, he knew that this was something he wanted. That he desired men. This scene for me is very heartbreaking. You can feel Morris just wanting to be quote-unquote normal you know of he's so tired I think of being the other you know of being in a society that will not allow him to be who he is and will not allow him to express the desires that he has and the love that he feels for another person he loves and adores Clive they have a deep emotional connection and they have for years And yet every day of his life, he has to keep it quiet and he has to keep it silent. And that wears on a person. That absolutely wears a person down to have to hide who they love, to have to live in fear that somebody's going to find out, to to live in fear that they could be arrested or put in prison for it. Or just be attacked, you know? I mean, you could encounter violence for it, um... Clive is his great love, but but Clive is also his greatest heartbreak, I think. And um, in that scene where he's he's talking to his family friend, and I think the man's a doctor or something, and he wants to be cured. You know, he doesn't want to feel these things anymore. Um, and you can just feel his pain, and you can feel how alone he is without Clive, you know. But the thing that I love about Morris is that I guess the story could have easily ended with Clive's marriage. It could have ended with tragedy. It could have ended with pain. So many queer stories throughout history end in death, in suicide, or in, um, you know, the two characters not being able to be together. And this story easily could have ended this way, where Clive gets married and Morris is heartbroken but but Forster gives us a happy ending and he gives he gives Morris a second chance at love. He gives Morris almost like a second life. And he does that through Alec Scudder, who's played by Rupert Graves. And um Alec is he he's a young man and he works at Pendersley Park. And over time, he sort of watches Morris, and he sort of sees, he tries to talk to Morris a bit, and then at night, one night, he sees Morris putting his head out of a window to enjoy the rain. Um, at this time, Morris is extremely frustrated. You can tell that he's sort of sexually frustrated. He's restless, especially at night, when he will get up, and he will go to the window, and he feel he wants to feel the rain on his skin and he just wants something that will make him feel alive i think and i just think morris is really lost at this time what's interesting is that at first alec and morris do not really connect 
Alec is a groundskeeper. He's, you know, he's the help. He is not on the same level as Morris. They're not of the same class. And Morris seems much more bothered by Alec or sort of indifferent to him. The times when Alec does try to engage him in conversation or tries to be nice to him, he just sort of dismisses him. You know, he doesn't really think about him too much. And as I said, Morris doesn't exactly have progressive views of the working class or people who are at a class lower than him. But um, there's also a dreaminess about these scenes for me where um, it's almost like Ivory in the film is sort of trying to blur reality and dream that at times you're not even sure um, is Alec real? You know, uh, especially when Alec um, one night Morris is restless again and he goes out his window and then he goes back in and all of a sudden you know, Morris is in bed and Alec appears. He climbs up a ladder to get to Morris's room. And it's interesting to note that Morris did something very similar at the beginning of the film when he was in Cambridge, when he scaled a ladder or something and got through the window of Clive's room when they were at Cambridge together and he would go to his room. And all of a sudden, Alec is in Morris's room, and they start kissing each other. But at first, you're not sure, well, is Morris imagining this? Is this a dream that Morris is having? Alec seems to just come out of nowhere to sort of materialize out of the darkness. And you're not quite sure if he's real or, or if he's a, a figment, I guess, of Morris's imagination or his dreams. But they do start kissing, and the next morning they're still in bed together, and they've obviously made love, and they hold each other. But um, but Alec leaves before the servant uh, comes into Morris's room. And so their relationship sort of begins with that. And But even as he finds Alec, and I think he deeply is searching for somebody like Alec, He's desperate for somebody like Alec. He needs a friend. He needs a companion because he has lost the only connection he ever had, which was Clive. You know, Clive was his world. Clive woke him up. Clive was his great love and Clive is gone. He's married, you know. So Morris is still struggling with it and he visits a hypnotist. So this is Morris's second attempt to try and cure himself to try to become straight. And I know that there's a film out now, or it's going to come out, and I think it's called The Miseducation of Cameron Post. And I believe that that is about gay conversion therapy, um, from what I've heard, you know, that it's about how terrible it is, you know, and um, harmful it is. And I got to, I thought about that when I saw Ben Kingsley as this hypnotist. It's not exactly a conversion therapy, but it's, it's Morris trying to sort of, you know, become straight (laughs) or think that he can go to a hypnotist and that there's some kind of cure for homosexuality when obviously there isn't, um, because there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. There's nothing wrong with being gay or queer, um, that's why films like Boris are so important is that we have got to keep spreading the message and 
insisting that it is okay to be gay. It is okay to be homosexual. It's okay to be queer in whatever iteration that comes for you. You know, even if you can't put it into a slot of gay or straight, if you're fluid, if you're on the spectrum, whatever, all of it is fine. All of it is okay. That's why we need these films. That's why these films matter. Because you don't know who this film reached. You don't know who went to the theater. You don't know who went to their local video store and saw this film. And and finally saw some kind of representation of what they felt. You don't know how transformative that could have been for somebody. So these, these films profoundly matter. And the hypnotist, um, he reminds Morris that... Men were once put to death for being gay, and he tells Morris that he should move somewhere where it isn't illegal. And this this scene and this relationship with the hypnotist is just a deeper reminder of the criminalization of homosexuality, the fear um, that exists, and um, how many people lived with that fear. But what's great about Morris is that even though he struggles with his sexuality, in the end... I think he rejects self-hatred. I think he rejects all of it because of the love he feels for Alec. That in Alec, he has found someone that he can truly love and who can love him in return. And love is the great salvation. Love and connection. Um, He doesn't need the hypnotist. He doesn't need to be changed. He doesn't need to get married That's why I love this story that Forster wrote. And part of me wishes he had published it during his lifetime. Because it's such a radical idea. Um, It was a radical idea for its time. That queerness is okay and, and queer people can be happy. You know, that two gay men can live together and they can be together. They can have a happy ending. That love can win. Love can be victorious, right? Um, I I really love that message. But what starts to happen with Morris and Alec is that they start to distrust each other. Morris gets this letter from Alec, and to him it's sort of threatening. And he starts to worry that he might be blackmailed by Alec, and that that's what he's trying to do. But eventually they come through it. It just shows you the level of fear that these people lived under, that Anybody could find you out, and if somebody did find you out, they could ruin your life and ruin your career. But that is not what Alex is is trying to do, just trying to be with Morris. And they go to a hotel or a motel, and they have sex with each other. And this is another full frontal nude scene by men. And it just, you don't normally see actors in a film showing their penises it it was just it took me aback you know I just don't normally see you know you don't see George Clooney uh or or (laughs) whoever doing full frontal nude scenes so it's not something that you expect to see but James Wilby is nude in the scene Rupert Graves is nude you see full frontal nudity and it's completely natural and completely normal they've just made love 
they're naked alone in a bedroom, you know, in a hotel room. Yeah, I think they would kind of stand up and, and be nude with each other, wouldn't they? So it's part of the scene. It's um, just a natural part of it. But it's just totally radical to me. It's like, oh my God, I never see this even now, 30 years later. And we still rarely see male nudity. We rarely see the male body unclothed in this way. And um, I just love that I, that James Ivory put it in there. I love that the actors did it. You know, it it's a great scene. It's just what two people would do after they've had sex, right? So um, it's just really rare, though. And, and I was reminded watching this scene how incredibly rare male nudity is. Whereas with female nudity, that's not rare at all. You see that really often. Um, but I just love the intimacy that they feel with each other, the comfort they feel with each other. And, um, you know, Alec is trying to figure out what to do because he's supposed to immigrate to Argentina. But Morris is asking him to not go. Morris is asking him to stay with him for them to be together. And, um, Alec kind of acts like he's still going to go, that he is going to leave because he probably thinks, well, how could this work? How could, how could we make this happen? Um, so Morris shows up at the boat where Alec is supposed to get on and go to Argentina and Alec doesn't show up. And, um, this is a really amazing scene. Like I said, the story could have ended when Clive got married. But I love that it continues. I love that Forrester didn't take the easy way out. He didn't just take the tragic route. Um, he decided that these characters were going to have a life together. That even if they couldn't have it in real life, I don't know how common it was for men to live together at that time. I don't even know if that was a possibility. But what I love about fiction and about art is that sometimes what it can give us are possibilities and it can give us alternatives and it can give us new ideas and new ways of thinking. And so what this book says is that, or the film too, the film and the book, they're so intertwined to me because the film is so faithful to the book. What it says to me is that these are the possibilities. This is how else this story can go. It doesn't have to stop with Clive getting married. It doesn't have to end with marriage. It doesn't have to end with you forcing yourself into a loveless marriage and, and conforming yourself to society's rules. That there are other options and other choices, at least for these characters. And so what this film really ends with is really a declaration of love and a, a belief in love, right? That Alec has no guarantees when he misses that boat to Argentina. He's giving up his job that he would have had in Argentina. He's giving up his new life and he's staying to be with Morris without any kind of guarantee of what could happen. He does that for Morris. It's an act of love. And he does what Clive was never able to do, to sacrifice everything for love. So Morris goes to the boathouse, that's where Alec lives on the grounds of Pendersley Park, and um, Alec is waiting for him. 
Now, you know, Morris Morris is taking a chance too. Both of these men are taking a chance. They can start a new life together. They can be together. And Alec, and they kiss, and it's this really passionate kissing that they do. And um, Alec says that they won't be parted. And so I feel like in this scene and in this ending, Forster just gives us this total affirmation of love and connection. But he doesn't end it with Clive and Alec, which I thought was kind of interesting. He actually, not did I say it right? I don't know what I just said. He doesn't end it with Alec and Morris. I thought I said Clive. Um, he doesn't end it with Alec and Morris being together and going off together. Their their story ends in that boathouse, and we don't know where they go. We don't know what happens to them, but we do know that Morris had talked earlier of them just going away together, getting away from society, getting away from people. So it's totally possible that they go somewhere and do that. It ends with Clive um, in his bedroom with his wife, and you can tell that she's unhappy, that there's this distance between her and Clive. And um, you can tell that this is a loveless marriage. This is not a meaningful connection, you know. This is him settling. This is him giving in. This is him living the life that he thinks he has to live, you know, so that he can keep Pendersley and he can keep his status and he can keep his family because he does have a lot to lose. And I understand that and I'm sympathetic to that, actually, that even though he can't be with Morris and he couldn't do for Morris what Morris really deserved and he really couldn't give it all up for love, he was just so scared, you know, and he didn't want to lose everything. But Ivory shows um, Clive thinking back to a memory of Morris at Cambridge. Like Clive is looking out the window and he imagines seeing uh, Morris. And he imagines his face and him waving and him smiling and his beautiful blonde hair, James Welby. I love James Welby. <laughs> and there's just such a sense of mourning for what could have been if Clive had been able to be with Morris fully and completely. I feel like he took the easy way to a certain extent, and I feel that his life is very empty because of it. But at the same time, the society in which they lived, and in which Clive lived, did not give him many options. That he did love Morris, but he couldn't be with Morris, and he had to get married, and he felt like these were the things he had to do. But it, so both of it is all of it's heartbreaking. I feel for Morris, and I feel for Clive. I wanted them to be together. I was rooting for them, you know, the entire time. But it just wasn't possible, and. You can't be angry with Clive. I think what you have to be is angry with the society. Angry with the homophobia. Angry with, you know, these these things, these structures, these systems that are so much larger than these characters. And that is what these characters are ensnared in. You know, they are ensnared in this system of homophobia. And it exists still, 
you know. I, I think some people who live in cities or people who live in more progressive areas, um, maybe they believe that we've come really far. You know, I guess if you're white and you've got money and you live in certain parts of the country, you know, you do think we've made a lot of progress. But come come to the rural south, <laughs> I don't think so, you know, not if you're a person of color, a queer person of color, not if you're transgender, not if, you know, there's serious discrimination against the LGBTQ community in this country. It's not, and it's not just in rural areas. It's all around this country. It's everywhere. It's in cities. It's in small towns. It's everywhere because we all live under this system, all of us. We all struggle with it. So, but the thing is, is that the film affirms love. Morris can love. Morris chooses love. For me, Clive chooses a lie. But he has more to lose. And he loses Morris. That is his greatest loss. That is his greatest loss is Morris. That is what he ultimately loses because Morris um Morris is done with him. He goes to I think he goes to see Clive before he goes to the boathouse. I didn't mention that. Before he goes and meets with Alex and Alec, sorry. And um he he has finally I think freed himself of Clive. I think for a really long time Clive was all he could see. Clive was all he could think about. That was his first love. That was the man who just enraptured him. But it was also the man that he could never have and the man that broke his heart. Um, and so they have to leave each other. They have to. Morris has to move on. He has to let Clive have his life and have his wife and have whatever he's going to have, you know, but Morris can't take that path. That's what's important is that these two characters, we have followed them for three years, just three years. It doesn't, it feels like a lifetime by the end of the film, because this is a two and a half hour film. You feel like you followed them for 20 years but it's just three years, and yet at the end of that time, they are vastly different people. They're nothing like they were, and they're nothing like each other. At all. Morris finds really what Alec, Morris finds with Alec what Clive could never give him. And that is a full and complete love, body and soul. And I think that Morris has to lose Clive in order to find himself. He has got to disentangle himself from Clive. Because the two of them, even though they started in the same place in Cambridge, young and full of hope and promise, their lives have diverged completely. And Clive has taken his path with Pendersley and his wife and that life that he's chosen and Morris has to take a very different course and a very different path, which is to live the way that is true to himself and to live in love. To live in a way 
that affirms and celebrates love and connection. So I think that's a really beautiful message. I think that is why I love the film so deeply, you know, is that there is heartbreak. There is pain in it. But for me, Morris overcomes it. You know, he's able to overcome the heartbreak of Clive. And he's also able to overcome the self-hatred for his sexuality that he has been struggling with the entire film. Going to the hypnotist, going to the family friend, trying to exercise this thing out, uh, this thing from him, you know, this homosexuality that he thinks is shameful and and terrible you know and it's not it's one part of him and it's he is worth loving and he chooses to be who he is he chooses to love another man and to be true to that love you know and that's not everybody's path and and it's not a judgment against Clive it's not a judgment against people in the 1910s and beyond who were not able to do that you know because obviously class plays into this a bit you know that Morris comes from another class and he may have the resources and the money to live in a way that is a bit outside of convention and a bit outside normal society right um but this is just a beautiful narrative and a beautiful ending that he chooses love. He chooses love and connection. And he chooses to affirm himself. And he chooses to be who he is instead of trying to kill and destroy and remove um, that part of himself and to try to be quote unquote normal. He has finally accepted who he is. And he has found a man to give himself to. And he's found a man to love and to be with for the rest of his life. And I love that he has that. And I love that he's given that. Um, So there's so much to this film. I really, really enjoy talking about it. And I really enjoy um, just sharing my thoughts and feelings. And I hope I did it justice. It's just one of those films that means so much to me and is just has such a power over me when I watch it. And I will continue to listen to the soundtrack and I'll probably periodically revisit the film because I just adore it. I, I love every frame of it. I just I took tons of screenshots while I was watching so that I can look at them and like relive it. <laughs> um I just want to live inside this film. It's so beautiful. And it's a really um, gorgeous romantic love story too on top of all of it. Well, I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. Until next time, keep watching great films. Mm